Ezra chapter 2. And um, I'm excited about the opportunity to, uh, to talk about this chapter. And, and it's an interesting chapter. It's one of those chapters where it gives a list of names. And um, our family, uh, this was a passage that was in our family worship this week. <coughs> and so um, we did, as a family, read through this whole chapter. And it was really interesting to hear the kids sound out Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Reum, Bana, and so on. It was just really interesting to hear them stumble over it. But it's very profitable for us, if only to, um, to honor the Lord with the reading of his word. And this morning... I want us to look at this. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter. I will make some points here uh, back and forth. Um, But there's three things that I'd like for us to look at and to think about when we read lists of names, especially this list. But when you read a list like this, there's there's kind of, I don't know, um, I know when I read it, I just finished reading the first several chapters of the book of First of Chronicles, and I think the first 10 chapters or whatever, I think it's that book, is just the genealogies and just the lists. And so I find myself reading the same phrase over and over and over and over and over again. This is the sons of the father and did this and did this and did this and his name was such. And this was this and this is, and you read it over and over again and it becomes very much a an exercise in repetition. And then it also leads me to be like, oh my goodness, you know, what does this even mean to me? How, 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 do, I, how do I get anything from it? Well, I want to talk today about a couple of those things, a way maybe we could read it to benefit. The first thing that uh, we need to see today in Ezra chapter 2 is going to be the personal nature of the list of names. The personal nature of the list of names. In verse 1 it says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. And I know I haven't quite exhausted the idea of the exile yet and the reason why we're reading the book of Ezra, but um, I do want to remind you that in verse 1 of chapter 2, He's speaking about particular people. There, there are particular people that we could look back into Chronicles. We could look back into the history of the Old Testament. And we could see that these were specific individuals who, because of their sin and because of the rebellion in, in the hearts of the people, were exiled, were driven out of the land by the Babylonians. And so there were specific individuals. And that's one thing that's important for us to think about when we read through it. This is an account of the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon. So these are individual people. And it's important as we read this to understand that it is a personal, has a personal nature. They're not just random They're not just arbitrary. These are specific families who were saved. Can we think about that for just a second? 
when we think about the, the enormity of what these names represent, they represent people who were delivered from bondage. This isn't necessarily even something that we got a whole lot of in the book of Exodus, specific people who were delivered. But in Ezra, we are going to be given a good list of those people who were saved by God. They were real people. And we need to to read this list with a kind of filter in our mind that recognizes that these were real persons. We have a a list of families, right? You go over and you look at verse 2 and then following. In verse 2, the number of men of the people of Israel. Verse 3, the sons of Perash, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Era, the sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, the sons of Elam, the sons of Zatu, the sons of Zakai, the sons of Bani, the sons of Bebai, the sons of Asgad, the sons of Adonikam, the sons of Bigvi. These are real people. These are real families. They're not just random things. I know I've sat in, uh, in a number of living rooms in our community. I sat in one living room and was talking to them about how they're connected to different people. And they went and got this book, The History of Tappan, I think it was, and opened it up. And we went through page after page after page after page after chapter after chapter of names that meant nothing to me. Nothing whatsoever. But to this family meant everything. How disrespectful would it have been for me to go, oh, oh my gosh, I'm going to go through all these names. This is kind of like the thing we're going to. This is a list of those families that were returning from captivity into Jerusalem. This is a list of families that are the foundation for the families of the Israelites that we will see when we get into the New Testament. These are specific people that are very personal. I was in uh, Williston when I first moved up here. I I don't remember remember what I was doing up there, probably looking for a falcon. And I was talking to somebody at a gas station. He found out I was from Crystal Springs, and he immediately asked if I knew any mitt lighters. I was like, no, I've never heard of a mitt lighter. (laughs) Somehow, this guy in Williston was related to somebody somehow. Right? He knew Rick's uncle or somehow was connected to, to something, some way. And as he talked, there were some great memories that he had. And I could tell as he was telling me this story, he's an old guy, he's telling me this story, and you could see he was, go, he was going back decades. And in his mind, he was living those moments when somebody's uncle related to somebody in here was doing something with something that he had to do with. And he went back in time in his mind. And it meant something to this guy. Didn't mean anything to me. I had just moved here. I hardly knew anything about anything to do with Crystal Springs. But this man, as we talked, he went back and it meant something to him. There was something foundational As you and I read these kinds of lists, we need to read these kinds of lists with that same kind of grace. The same kind of grace that when we sit and listen to somebody else tell a story that has nothing to do with us, but we're gracious because we know that means a lot to them. 
We need to listen that way. And so when we read this, we need to read it in such a way that we, we think thoughtfully about it. It might not connect any dots. This isn't one of those lists where a lot of the names jump out. Like when we read the, the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke that, that show us about Jesus, we can recognize some of the king's names and we're like, oh, we can go back into history. But when we read this, this is a personal list. And so we need to think of the personal nature of this. Also in this list, we're going to see some, some familiar towns, right? That'll help us. This is where these people actually came from, right? I, I was talking with somebody when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary, and I was talking with one of the Walt families. And one of the Walt families, I think he's somewhere in Arizona, maybe Vegas. I can't remember where he's from off of my head. But if I got it right, some of you all know who I'm talking about. But he was talking about remembering growing up in Crystal Springs. And he remembers hearing stories about Crystal Springs when it was actual Crystal Springs. Right? Some of the things, Raymond and Jeanette, that you have the, the pictures of and the newspapers of. You can look back to see when Crystal Springs was Crystal Springs and, and not just a couple of houses and a church. When we think about those kind of things, there's, a, there's a, an in, inclination for us to, to maybe either be interested and say, oh, I, I like that, or to be like, uh, it's nothing now. But when we read this, we need, to, we need to look at it. This is where these people came from. This is where their connection was. There's, a quite, there's quite a bit of relevancy in this passage that if we were there, these names and these places would be something like, oh, I was talking with somebody yesterday in Bismarck. And they were trying to tell me a story, and they said, and it all centered around, uh, is there a town called Center? Yeah, it centered around Center. And so he's telling me about Center. And when he talked about it, if I would have known about it, it would have made a lot more sense what he was saying, right? And as he said it, he expected me, oh, I get it. And then he wouldn't have to go into the rest of the story because that would explain everything. I'm from Center, you know, or I'm from Harvey, or I used to live in Harvey, or whatever, as if that would mean something to me, which it doesn't because I don't really know that. That's what we get when we read here. All of us here today are like I am coming to North Dakota. We're all from Chattanooga, and we're going to a place that we're not familiar with. But we care about what it says. We care about those people. We care about where they're coming from. And even though we don't understand it, we do have a relationship, and so we want to, to at least be respectful and that's the kind of attitude that we come to the, to the second chapter of Ezra with. Because we can recognize some of these names. We recognize uh, Bethlehem. Where does it say this? It says, um, um, it, look at verse 28. We hear the, the name we see Bethel and Ai. And we go down to see in verse 34, the sons of Jericho. These are some names that as we read, we can see some kind of history you know, it's possible that we can think of other parts of the story. And so even us in our very limited perspective on what's going on, there is at least a hint of familiarity, right? And so that needs to cover or sort of cover our thinking or filter our thinking. Oh, I can connect with this. <coughs> this list of people is just one in a line of many in the Old Testament. And when we read a list like this, it, it ought to help us recognize that God does work through individual people. Right? God's message is made up of individual people. It's kind of the same thing for us. I mean, we're all individuals, but God's story is still progressing through history. And the list that you and I would enjoy 
would be the list of the members of God's people here at Crystal Springs. This is how we fit within the genealogy, the family of this. In our church specifically, in a way that hasn't been in any of the churches I've ever been a part of. But, you know, we can track four or five generations sometimes in the genealogy of our church. Now, that doesn't mean, didn't mean anything to me three and a half years ago. It meant everything to you three and a half years ago. And now, because I know you and I know those generations, it means something to me. And so when we read a list like this, we need to give the readers or the writers that kind of credit. It's a personal list. There's real people involved. The second thing that um, I want us to look at in this specific list is not just the, the personal nature of some of the names, but because we're in the book of Ezra, these names have something specific to do with his story, the story of Ezra. And we're going to see in verses 36 and following the priestly nature of some of these names. Not just the personal nature, but there's a priestly nature about some of these names also. This is crucial, crucial. This is crucial for the continuity of faith. What I mean by that is, in the, in the middle of or the beginning of the book of Genesis, God called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans. And he set Abram apart and he promised Abram that all kinds of people, that the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abram's offspring. And then God cut a covenant with Abram and he had Abram sacrifice these animals and God made a promise to Abraham. I will bless you. And the way I'm going to prove that is by cutting these animals in half and I'm going to make a promise. He walks through the blood and he says, may this happen to me if I fail to keep my promise. And then in true Chaldean fashion, he walks through it again because Abram's asleep and God says, may I keep this may this happen to me if you fail in your promise. And so God establishes this kind of sacrificial promise structure. The book of Exodus, we see it with the tabernacle. God continues to establish it in a much more defined way. God is to be worshipped this way. God is to be worshipped by these people. God is to be worshipped with these implements. God is to be praised with these words. God is to be submitted to and obeyed because of these laws. And so God established that his worship would be done according to his will. And it would be done in his way. And he took that really, really seriously. So much so that... What was it? Aaron's sons offered a strange fire and immediately they died because they didn't take God seriously. And we can see from Exodus on through Leviticus and, and into Deuteronomy and then all the way through when, when David is moving the ark and he's moving it contrary to God's revelation and the oxen stumble and Uzzah reaches up to, to steady the ark and God strikes him dead because he didn't do it God's way. And the structure that we have in the Old Testament is the priestly guide or the priestly direction. And so in the book of Ezra, in this list, there's a priestly nature to some of these names. God isn't just having people come back generally. He's having people come back and he's having priests come back with them, Levites to guide them. 
Here in this passage in chapter 2, we have God establishing His worship again. God is establishing His sacrificial system again. And because we're reading a list, we know that He's doing it through these individual people. And that's important. It's not just a general theory that God wants us to be worshipped. God is establishing His worship in these actual names. These are the names. It's a practical truth. And when we read this list, we can hope in this God. This is the God who provides for His worship. He provides leadership. He provides guidance. He provides direction. And here God is providing for His worship. These are real priests who will lead real people to worship God for real. These are the people, these names here, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, the sons of Immer, the sons of Pasher, the sons of Haram. We see the Levites, the sons of Cadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, the, the singers, the sons of Asaph, the sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmud. These specific people God is raising up. When you and I read it, we don't necessarily know who these people are. But the significance is for you and I that these are real people that lived in their time that God used to guide people to give him glory. It wasn't just a theory. It wasn't theoretical. Practically worked out. God provided for his own worship in these people. Notice when we look at this list that it's not just priests and Levites, but there's temple servants. Look in verse 43, the temple servants, the sons of Ziha, Hasufa, the sons of Taboa, the sons of Keras, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Peyton, the sons of Lebna, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, and so on, right? These are the temple servants. God plans to have a lot of worship done in this upcoming temple He has provided many people, scores of people. As I was preparing these last couple of months for this message, what stood out to me was the scope of the work done in this temple. This is a lot of workers. This is a lot of workers. This is thousands of workers doing the work of worship. We tend to think of God's worship as a simple time on Sunday morning where we might sing, we might bow our heads, we might give our tithes, we might shake hands, and we might talk a little while. Then we leave, live for six days, and then come back for another hour the next Sunday. But that's not the picture that we have in the Bible. And in this chapter, there's a priestly nature to these names, and there's a lot of names Worship of the Lord is extravagant. It's time-consuming. It's costly. It takes a lot of work to worship. Think about that. So much of our efforts every year is spent in preparing and laboring I mean, I look at you men, I look at you women, and I'm like, my goodness, I don't know how you do it. And you do it year after year after year after year, preparing to plant the seeds and getting all the equipment ready. It is so much work. 
and then planning out the fields and all of that stuff and then <coughs> transferring the grain and getting it this and, and making this happen and then that happened and then putting it into the ground. And then, I mean, so much work goes into what you do. That gives us kind of, a, a, of an idea of the reality of the significance of your life. If you don't, right? This is one church of all the churches I've been in understands what Paul meant when he talked to the Thessalonians. He said, if you don't work, you don't eat. This is connected to your life. And we don't even think about it. We just do it. As we read through this passage and we see man after man after man after son after son after house after house after house, that gives us a little bit of a perspective on the extent or the grandeur of this worship, of this sacrificial system, of, the, of, of what it takes to set aside the name of God and lift it up before the world. This is a beautiful picture for you and I. And in this list, if we don't even know the names, we ought to look at the quantity. The sons of so on, 70. The sons of someone. 128, the sons of so on, in all 139. And you go through and you see all of these numbers. Why do they need so many people? Why do we need so many singers? Why do we need so many gatekeepers? It's because God's worship is extravagant. This, as we look at it, it doesn't show us the magnitude of these families. It shows us the magnitude of the God that requires this many people to begin to lift him up. What a challenge today. As we read these names and these family names, we can see that there is a whole lot to it. We can see priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, various other individuals who did all kinds of tasks, all focused on giving God the glory that he deserves. That's a big deal. When we read this kind of a list, at the very least, we ought to consider the enormous responsibility that God laid on his worshipers to get it right. To get it right. And we need to consider the tremendous amount of work that had to be done to make one person know the Lord. So much work. The thing that challenges me as I read this is that all of these preparations, all of these sacrifices, all of this work fails to get one person right with the Lord. That's sobering to me. That's sobering to me. All of these things are just a shadow. All of these works, the blood of a calf, the blood of a goat, the blood of a lamb, none, none of that is good to forgive the sins. Only the blood of Christ. This is an important reality. When we see all of this work, we read the book of Hebrews, we read the book of Leviticus, and we see time and time again all these Priests and Levites are doing so much sacrifice, so much work. And yet, when we go through the rest of the history of, of the book of Israel, they're still failing. They're still sinning. They're still transgressing. They're still rebelling against God. That's why we find ourselves in the book of Exodus. That there's no power in these things. These are just a shadow. And when we look at that, we say, my goodness, what a shadow. That leads us to the 
The third thing that I see as I look through here, it's the problematic nature of some of the names. The problematic nature of some of the names. Look in verse 59, and this is interesting to me. The following were those who came up from Telma, Telmalah, Tel, Hash, Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Imar. Look at what it says. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent that they belonged to Israel. There's a problem in this list of names. We have a number of families that want to participate and worship the Lord, that want to participate in the sacrificial system. They want to participate in the worship of the Lord. But they can't track their heritage. They can't prove that they are actually part of the family of Israel. Verse 62, it says, These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. There's a problematic nature of some of these names. As we look at this, let's look at three aspects of the problem. The first problem that we have is that these people have lost their heritage. They can no longer trace back through 80 years or so who their family is. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was... It was just laxity on, on the parents teaching their children, you know, who their parents were, the grandparents were. Remember, they moved from the land and they moved into, the, into Babylon, so they don't have the land to connect to their heritage anymore. And so they've lost their heritage. They don't know who they are. That's a problem. But the thing that stands out to me even more than that isn't just that they, or isn't that they lost their heritage. But what stands out to me is the reality that it's even brought up. That it's even mentioned here. I mean, we see that God lays down the rules, right? That's what we've been talking about. That's why we have priests. That's why we have Levites. They have a role. They have a job to do, and they have to do it correctly. But even in this instance, God has laid down the rules. And this sort of sets the tone for for the way the the rest of the book is going to go. These people can't tell who their grandparents, great-grandparents are. And so they can't prove that they ought to be priests or Levites, that they ought to serve the Lord in this manner. And it's interesting to me that the book of Ezra leaves it at that. Here's the deal. They can't do it. They can't prove it. And so look at verse 63. It says, verse 62, And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim, which is the, the two stones that the uh, priest would wear, the high priest would wear. And somehow or other, they would consult the stone and it would tell you yes or no. Or it, it, That's how they cast lots. That's how God worked to communicate his will in, in some way or other. <coughs> and so God has laid down the rules here. And everybody accepts it. And I think that's important. Because when we look at this, we, see, we don't see these people jumping up and saying, hey, it's not fair. Oh my gosh, I've been excluded. That's not fair. I know, I promise my grandfather was a priest. I promise. You don't see any of that. What you see is this submission to God's authority. God laid down the rules. And they're like, okay, we can't track it. 
It needs to be someone who is a Levite, who is from the family of Levi. We know that's God's plan. He's revealed it. And so these people are resting in that. And that's, a, that's an encouraging thing. The third thing is this, the recognition of the effects of sin. I said third, Amy. You looked at me. Did I? Is that the second one or is that the third one? Okay. She'll say, you know, you said three, but you only gave two. So this is the third one. When we look at this, we need to recognize the effects of sin. We need to recognize the effects of sin. And it's right here in the story. Sin has damaged the heritage of this nation. We don't see 12 tribes anymore. Sin has devastated the nation of Israel. And we don't see 12 tribes returning. We just see a partial remnant. Sin has, has driven a wedge between God's people and the world here. God's people and Himself. They've been driven out and now only a few are coming back. And as we read this, we ought to read it in such a way that helps us to see that sin has really tarnished the, the heritage of this nation. We have families that can't even trace their lineage. They haven't been faithful in sharing the history and the story of God to the point that now we don't even know where we fit into God's family. They can't depend on their ancestors It's as if they have no place on their own in the family of God. Sin has removed them from this. And now they have to wait. I wrote down this. It is really helpful to see the leadership hold up this standard and to see the people respond favorably to their situation. This is what the Bible says. We don't know exactly what to do about it, but we're going to wait on the Lord. Now, the next time this happens in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're going to see people come up in arms and attack when they don't want to do what God says. They don't want to be submissive to God's will. But here it's a very, it's a very precious reality to see that even in the effects of, of their sinful nature, God is stirring up their hearts and working in and through them. The last couple of sentences in this verse, or in this chapter, are also very sobering when we look at the effects of sin. In contrast to what David had provided for the first temple, this is a pittance. Look what it says. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, they made free will offerings to the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 6,100 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. I know that, that any amount of gold sounds like a lot, but man, when you compare that to what David prepared, holy moly. David prepared so much for the first temple. Solomon prepared so much for the first temple. But when we recognize the effects of sin, this temple isn't going to be the glorious structure that it was in Solomon's day. Sin has tarnished. Sin has corrupted. Sin has affected these people in ways that are hard to fathom. This is a small remnant Very few animals, very few families, very few homes. Sin has its effect. Before we talk about the application this morning, that for me is one of the greatest challenges. Sin affects families. So often we treat sin as if it's some theory out there that we ought to watch out for. But this is a story that affected actual people, actual souls. This list represents people that were affected by sin. When we think of this, my application is this. 
A, God works through real people. As we focus this morning, I want you to think about where you fall on God's list. Think about that. It doesn't just happen. We aren't all on God's list. God stirs up our hearts and we respond to Him. God works in us to draw us to Him. God works in us as we hear His Word and we repent and we believe. This is the reality of the truth of the Gospel. This is the reality of the glory of the truth. Ezra is a great example. These people were living in bondage because of their sin. These people were going to live apart from Him in their sin forever in Babylon. And yet, He stirred their hearts to respond to Him in faith. That was the message of the beginning, right? God was at work stirring up their hearts. And that's the message for some of you today. Some of you are not on the list. Some of you sit there in your captivity to sin and you are not on the list. You are living in the darkness and you're living in the sinfulness of your heart right now. You're not on the list. You're ungodly. You're unrighteous. And in yourself, you have no hope and you're stuck in Babylon. But, but today, listen to me. Today, God could be stirring your heart as we speak. Think about this. God in His grace is allowing you to hear right now that you can go to Jerusalem. You could follow Him. You could get on the list. You could trust Him. You could be one of those individuals because God saves individuals from their sins. He will save you. He will save you. On your own, you're heading for death and eternal damnation, but you don't have to pay for the sins that you have committed. Jesus Christ has done it. You can trust Him. That's the gospel. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners, and now He offers it to you as a free gift. Won't you come to Him? Won't you repent of your sins and turn to Him for salvation? He wants to save you now. Christians, do you realize that you are the real people that God is working through to bring his gospel to our community? It's not just a theory. You're on the list of people that God is using in our community to bring his gospel to life. Think about that. It's not somebody else. It's you and I. We are alive today to share this truth. How hopeful is that? The second thing is, not only does God work through real people, but Jesus Christ singularly fulfilled all of the tasks and responsibility of the temple. I want you to think about that with me. We talk about all the, the work that had to be done in chapter 2. All of the work of the temple. All of the work of the singers and the, the gatekeepers. And all of that that went on. Jesus Christ fulfilled that perfectly. We don't need to do all those things to come to God. Jesus Christ did all those things to bring us to God. 
He's the only one for us to focus on now. You and I, we don't have to do anything to make ourselves right with him. Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus Christ has done it all. There's only one name now where all of these other names were. Jesus Christ. How hopeful is that? That's the message, congregation, that we need to take to this community. They don't need to jump through all kinds of hoops. They just need to turn to Christ Jesus. That's the one name that means more than anything. Where do we find ourselves this morning? Where do we find ourselves this morning? We find ourselves where they found themselves. God speaking. Us either listening and responding in faith or rebelling. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that there is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And that's Christ. So as we listen today and as we, as we leave today, let's trust that name. Let's trust that one name. And let's share it. Good Lord, work in our souls. Lord Jesus Christ, work in our hearts and our minds that we would know you. Help us to trust you, help us to obey you, and help us to praise you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray today. Amen. Amen.